0: On last week's program, at the top of this show, we're going to have a continuing chat with our favorite pharmacologist, Dr. Howard McKinney. We had a uh, an interesting chat last week about, uh, well, I guess the topic was how not to kill yourself. Uh, we recommend if you didn't hear that, listener, uh, check it out because it's hard to summarize with a thumbnail sketch. At any rate, before I get too blabby here, let me just say welcome back to Radio Parallax, Howard McKinney.
1: Thank you. Always a pleasure, Doug. We've talked
0: on so many different topics over the years. Uh, We talked about the abortion pill. We've talked about methamphetamine. We've talked about fentanyl-like compounds. Uh, I think we talked about snake venom at one point. Uh, We talked about Russian poisoning of politicians. Um, There's so much that we could talk about. I don't even know where to begin. But what I'm going to do is take a page from the playbook of the famous mathematician Paul Erdős, who would show up at people's houses and stay with them because he was not very capable of managing his own affairs but he was a brilliant mathematician he would show up and just say my brain is open so I'm hoping Howard that you'll be able to also say my brain is open and let's go from there
1: well let's give it a shot
0: all right um, I'm looking at a briefing from the week which is which always has a very very wonderful summary of items they decide to do a briefing on and this one is the fentanyl scourge. And I thought I would excerpt from it and just bounce the stuff that they're saying off of you for you know further further comment. Sure. It starts out asking how dangerous is fentanyl? Note they note it was developed in 1960, a synthetic opioid. Still used as a prescription painkiller. And it's used through controlled release patches, pills, lozenges, sprays. They note in its illicit form, it is pure highly addictive, and often lethal. 50 times more potent than heroin. It can now kill in doses as small as two milligrams. And it's now responsible for two-thirds of the more than 107,000 fatal overdoses in the U.S. in 2021, which I have to admit, first off, that number whips me upside the head. That's a lot of drug overdoses.
1: Yes, it is. A couple of aspects of that that kind of jumped out to me. And we should inform our audience that uh, the week is a publication. It's a summary of the previous week, and it's a very nice, succinct, concise publication. But let's just talk for a minute about how good fentanyl is and why it got so widely used in specifically anesthesia. Yes, yes surgical suites, but in general in medicine, emergency medicine and intensive care medicine as well, is morphine has been used for a long time in a lot of different dose forms for pain control, and it works great as far as it goes. One of the issues with morphine is it has a lot of side effects, and when fentanyl came along, it was just a blessing because it has almost no side effects. I didn't say it does not have any adverse effects. I said it, by comparison with morphine and the morphine-related drugs, it's a very clean drug. There's very little in the way of what kind of looks like an allergic reaction or, you know, nausea and vomiting or... The, the laundry list of effects that can occur with morphine. The other aspect of fentanyl, in addition to being very clean, and that is devoid of a lot of the side effects that morphine plagued patients with, is it was just beautifully easy to dose by intravenous mm-hmm. in- injection or IV push. Yes. Yeah. And very small doses, it's dosed in micrograms, as opposed to morphine, which is typically dosed in milligrams. That's a thousand-fold difference right there. But it also, fentanyl has a very fast onset when you administer it by direct intravenous push and a very short duration. Good things
0: if you want to manage pain.
1: One of the scenarios I witnessed when I first started as part of starting the operating room pharmacy service at UC Davis Med Center is being in the room with some of my anesthesia friends um, at the head of the, the bed in the operating suite. And the GI surgeons have the belly cut open and they're working on the belly. And opiates, including fentanyl, can either tighten or relax abdominal muscles so what you see is a constant conversation between the gastrointestinal surgeon and the anesthesiologist on that case Mm -hmm. is the surgeon's going can you tighten it up a little down here and there'll be a little uh, administration of a drug and minute later, can you loosen it a little? And there'll be another little push of drug. And you can go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth with this easily throughout a several two or three hour long surgical procedure in the operating room. Now, what were those two drugs? They were fentanyl and naloxone. Uh-huh. Narcan is the trade name. Yes. that A lot of people know it by. And basically what the anesthesia personnel were doing is giving a little fentanyl to relax the abdominal muscles, and then giving a little bit of naloxone to antagonize the fentanyl and reverse that effect. So you, you could just go back and forth and back and forth. So it's a very fast-acting, short-duration drug that is wonderful to use for procedures in the operating room, in intensive care units, or in the emergency department. So that's why it, it got famous in medicine. It of course does have, and I'll bet you where this artist and I can tell from the numbers you were reading, and I'll just make a couple of quickie comments, but the fentanyl with the proper precursors. Now you do have to have the the, the starting material. But from those starting materials, fentanyl is pretty easy to synthesize. There's also a gazillion derivatives of fentanyl, many of which are used in medicine. Remifentanil is one of them that people may have heard of. And they're molecules that are trying to do certain jobs for very specific patients. So that that's a whole nother subject. But suffice it to say, there's a lot of derivatives of fentanyl on the market.
0: Let's circle back to those, because we talked about that in a previous uh, discussion we had. Uh, the next question they ask in the briefing is, how did it become so prevalent? And they note it's extremely strong, fast-acting, easy to make. Some of its precursor chemicals are widely available because they're also used in the manufacture of other drugs, pesticides, and soap. And here's the sentence that really got me. In the 2010s, federal officials cracked down on the proliferation of prescription opioids after overdose deaths caused by them rose from 3,000 to nearly 17,000 between 1999 and 2017. But then, The flip side of this is addicts sought highs elsewhere, first through heroin, then fentanyl, which produced an even more powerful state of euphoria at a much lower cost, and usually does not require the use of needles. Officials, notes the magazine, were slow to recognize the threat, but from 2017 to 2022, the amount of fentanyl seized by border officials jumped ninefold. And of course, that's only intercepting 5 to 10% of what's coming in. Right talk about like out of the frying pan into the fire there was all this talk a few years back about all these doctors were giving everybody and they made a big deal about oxycontin with some justification but the the cure for this to cut back on on prescriptions is turning out to be i think uh worse than the initial disease
1: and what the statement seems to be mixing there that i think are two completely different areas of endeavor that are important to keep separate, is the illicit marketplace versus the prescription legitimate medical use of these drugs. So right off the bat, when somebody talks about fentanyl in an anesthesia suite in the hospital, everybody knows that it's the drug fentanyl that you're talking about. It's over there, locked in the cabinet, and can be obtained and administered to the patient. The problem that I, when you mix the the two arenas, is that the illicit marketplace, I do not think for one minute started using the distribution of fentanyl as a money-making project for any pharmacologic attributes of fentanyl. They simply adopted it because they could get their hands on the precursors. Heroin was becoming difficult to produce for a number of reasons, not the least of which was that the DEA, Interpol, and various other law enforcement agencies knew all about how these labs made heroin and were, in fact it was pretty easy for them to identify which labs were making it. Um, the other problem occurred when, and this goes back to the fall of the Shah of Iran, is San Francisco was suddenly plagued with what we call Persian heroin because the heroin addicts in Iran at the time of the Shah did not inject their heroin. They smoked it. And the other attribute is, it was 99% pure.
0: Good God.
1: We were finding people that didn't even make it into the ambulance alive, much less to the emergency <laughs> department because the, the dose was just so massive. Right. And this is part of an entire tar- heroin was kind of starting to appear shortly after that. And it was such a junky product. It was just awful. And the addicts didn't like it. The dealers didn't like it. It was just a mess. Well, what
0: percentage would you say uh, street heroin before uh, compared to uh, the pure product? How, how cut is it? How much of the, of the actual things they're using is, is the active ingredient?
1: Maybe 1%. Okay. The great Dr. Daryl Anaba, a pharmacist, doctor of pharmacy, PharmD, like myself, who was eventually the director of haight Drug Detox Clinic, Darrell looked at me one day as we were discussing the patients and what, what the pharmacology was going on, and he just looked at me and he said, Howard, well, let me just explain it this way. We're not really treating heroin addicts. We're treating lactose addicts, <laughs> which is really sad. It, it's many layers to that comment. The point being that, yeah, it was junk, it was, it was a very impure product. And the sentence you read, or the portion of the sentence you read out of the week where they said, it's amazingly pure, I'm immediately raising my red flag and going, "That foul on that flag. I don't think so, because the chemists who are, and the world now thinks, that the majority of the precursors to make fentanyl, and just using that word fentanyl generically, what it really means is that the labs will make whatever the heck that they can make, and they don't know, and they don't care. So what you see with precursors, which seem to be sourced primarily in China, not fentanyl, but precursors shipped out of China, into Mexico and Central America. That's where the labs get their starting material and they synthesize product to smuggle into the United States and sell on the street under a zillion different street names. And it is what most of the media and law enforcement refer to just generically as fentanyl. But it's important to understand that you really don't know what's in any given sample, because this is there's no quality control in the illicit marketplace, so unlike the Persian heroin, which was very pure, the fentanyl aka drug products coming basically from Mexico and Central America now are an unknown entity and Who knows what's in it?
0: You talked about fentalogs when we spoke previously about how these are, yeah, it's fentanyl, but the molecule's been tweaked a little bit, and that can have a a variable effect in its potency and can really contribute to people's deaths. Exactly.
1: Plus, you can imagine a (laughs) chemistry-uneducated lab worker in the Sinaloa cartel in Mexico, and the precursor that you got for the last few months from China is now the label looks a little different. I don't care, I'm gonna throw it into the pot and mix it up just like I did before, and oh my goodness, look, it actually makes something we can sell. Ship it out, but they have no idea what
0: they're making. Let's talk about China versus versus Latin America. Uh, this article says from 2014 to 19, most of the fentanyl came in from China, sometimes in small packages sent through the mail, sometimes smuggled across land borders by Mexican cartels. They note that since then, though, the Sinaloa and Jalisco new generation cartels have cut out the middlemen and are making their own fentanyl powder and pills with the raw materials from China and India.
1: Mm hmm. Would agree with all of that, except I, and I'm not, I don't know, but, and, and hardly anybody is privy to this kind of data, but I'd be very surprised to find that both quantities of the actual drug fentanyl were being shipped out of China to Mexico and Central America. That would surprise me. Not impossible, but you're, you're now Xi Jinping. And you're the one that has to sanction, say yes or no, you can do this to the bulk chemical manufacturers in China. And if you're exporting the actual end product, fentanyl, that's illegal, <laughs> and you can get busted really bad uh-huh. for for shipping that.
0: Uh-huh. But
1: if you're shipping a bunch of chemicals with names a mile long, that are precursors to manufacture the family of fentanyl compounds, you have plausible deniability. I was just exporting chemical X. It's not fentanyl. What are you talking about?
0: This reminds me of back in Prohibition when, uh, when, when various wineries managed to stay in business by shipping out across the country packages of grape juice and i guess along a yeast yeast package they'd be talking about it whenever you do don't put this in a bowl and add the yeast because that'll make wine and that's illegal
1: <laughs> plus communion was just amazing like popular
0: <laughs> we should do a chat on prohibition one day because well actually let's do it right now i mean prohibition we don't have prohibition with the use of opioids in america but they've made it very, very tough on doctors. I hear this from a lot of different people how they know folks that are just having a rough time getting the pain medication they think that they need, and I think in most ca- in many cases, they do need those medic- medicines. So what percentage do you think of people are going to the illicit market when they're when they're dissatisfied with what they can obtain legally?
1: and the other driver that I do know about that has been fairly well documented is prescription pain medicines are expensive. Yes. Street pain medicines, by comparison, are much cheaper. So that was a big driver of people going to the street to get their pain relieved instead of getting it through prescription, which requires a, used to require doctor visit and insurance and pay up front, and blah, 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 blah. It It was, by comparison, almost impossible to get from a physician. Plus, the uncontrolled use of it by these unfortunate individuals led to them being addicted and requiring, therefore, ever greater and greater and greater doses. So they needed more and more drug, but they couldn't really explain to their doctor the... You know, I'm sorry. I need, I need 60 Percocet or OxyContin's a day now.
0: What did Rush Limbaugh have? Ten thousand OxyContin's? He bought some some kind of quantity that anybody besides Rush Limbaugh would have gone to slammer as a drug dealer.
1: Lots of comments about that, but <laughs> not yeah, well, let's today. not go
0: there today. One, one aspect of this I found really curious was that the claim now is that. This stuff's getting across the border in trucks and cars. And since, of course, there's such a huge volume crossing the border from Mexico, they can't search at all. But wouldn't you know it, the Biden administration is setting aside like a half a billion dollars worth of high-energy scanners to detect anomalies in vehicles crossing the border with the hope of catching more fentanyl smugglers. A lot of pounds of cure trying to treat some ounces of prevention.
1: We're where, in science fiction when we need it. <laughs> There are dogs that can tell the difference between different opiates by smell, so I suppose it's not impossible. Let's just trip out and dream for a minute here. (laughs) You could imagine a spectrographic instrument that could be used in combination with some kind of scanning device so that you could zap vehicles as they're queuing up to cross the border at uh, San Ysidro and identify the ones that had drug in them.
0: You would think that if there was a serious effort on either by the Mexican authorities or American authorities to shut down the drug trade, uh, they could do so much more effectively than they do. But that's a story for another day.
1: And have you followed the trial of the... Do I have this correct? He was kind of sort of the political head of the DEA in Mexico. Yes. And I I haven't had a chance to really read about it in detail to really know what I'm talking about. But I, I think the trial was, I think, in New York. Right. They tried it in America somehow. Yeah. And how that happened, I don't know. But the point is, and I love Mexico. I went there a lot. In the 1950s and 60s and early 70s, okay, and just love the culture, the people, the place, the history, the food, the music—just fantastic place. But having said that, it is tragic that in Mexico, the government and politicians are pretty much one and the same with the cartels. There is abundant evidence of that. This trial is bringing out a lot of that data, but it's it, nobody seriously that wants to stop the illicit drug trade in Mexico.
0: Well, Howard, I would stop at that point and say in a in a future discussion, let's substitute the word United States for Mexico and, and talk about that exact topic, that convergence of uh, politicians and, and drug dealing, because I don't think it's just Mexico, amigo.
1: Oh, I totally agree. I was watching some interviews on news outlets, but a couple of years ago, became aware, and then through my toxicology friends in Europe, Antwerp, Belgium, was for a while the largest import station for illegal drugs in the world. Container ship quantities. Servicing Europe, I guess. I mean, just massive quantities of drugs. I think it's Interpol, but the law enforcement presence has been in unbelievably enhanced at the Antwerp port, and they're starting to cut down on the amount of drug that actually gets smuggled through. But you are absolutely correct. This is, this is a worldwide problem. And the people who are in that business are not stupid at the very highest levels. They're doing what every other business is doing. They're trying to find the least expensive to them methods of manufacture, the least susceptible to getting spotted by law enforcement methods of distribution. And the world is open to them. You find the globalization of the illicit drug trade has been going on for decades.
0: And that's something we will talk about in the future. But unfortunately, Howard, we are out of time again.
1: Out of time. Great song, by the way. Great song.
0: Well, I, you've now given us a cue for the outro music, so that's perfect.
1: My beloved Rolling Stone.
0: Howard McKinney, always a pleasure and it's always informative. And uh, let's, let's, let's talk again soon. There's so many things that we can talk about.
1: Absolutely. All righty. All right, man.
0: Take care. Okay. All right. Speaking about things related to uh, chemistry and better living through chemistry, which I guess we just have been with Howard, I had to get a laugh over a uh, correspondence with longtime listener Sherry, who sent an email expressing, Oh, no! After hearing our talk about how baking soda has an expiration date on it, she sent a photo showing that the the box of baking soda she was currently cooking with expired in 2005. Yeah, it's pretty scary stuff, but I think she's going to turn out just fine. She thinks so, too. And as we wind up the show, we have a couple items from the bad idea file, starting with a piece from The Intercept by Sam Biddle with the headline that pretty much says it all. U.S. Special Forces Want to Use Deepfakes for PsyOps. Yes, the U.S. government, which has spent years warning us all that deepfakes could stabilize our democratic societies, wants to put them to use as a weapon. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, the U.S. Special Operations Command, responsible for some of the country's most secretive military endeavors, is gearing up to conduct internet propaganda and deception campaigns using online deepfake videos. Of course, if you talk to people down in Silicon Valley, they'll probably explain to you why this is a great idea. And the bright sparks over at the Pentagon have some other really good ideas for all of us. They want to use huge drone swarms now that can fly, crawl, or swim in combat article in New Scientist by David Hamling notes that a Pentagon project envisions automated, coordinated attacks by swarms of many types of drones that operate in the air, on the ground, and in the water. The idea is raising concerns about whether human oversight of such a swarm of swarms would even be possible. We would note already that low-cost drones have proven effective in the Ukrainian conflict where they have destroyed tanks, swamped air defenses, and damaged the power grid. Those, of course, were individually controlled. It's going to be a different story when we have swarms. Article quotes Zach Callenborn of George Mason, University of Virginia, saying as the swarm grows in size, it'll become virtually impossible for humans to manage the decisions. Autonomy and AI will be needed to make those decisions with all of the brittleness that that entails. A massive drone swarm is prone to errors, which would be a terrifying thing. Really, a new weapon of mass destruction. And of course, it also raises the prospect of how the drones are going to be able to use lethal force without direct human oversight. Well, that's a good thing to look into. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. Our thanks to Howard McKinney. I'm Douglas Everett, and we look forward to talking to you again next week on Radio Parallax.